there's nothing new about this. Uh, you know, this has gone on for a long, long time that the 70 million or 71 million people who voted for Trump are the same people who opposed in category, not as individuals who opposed Dr. King, who ended Reconstruction. There's nothing new about them. What is new is the 85 million people who were willing to stand up to it. I'm Debbie Weil, and this is the Gap Year Podcast, where we talk about making the most of the collective gap year that we're all living through right now. It's also a space for me to chew over things I want to understand better, like the deep political divide in this country. So today I talked to Diane Feldman, an old friend and a veteran political consultant, to get her take. After running the Feldman Group, a Democratic research and polling firm in D.C., for almost 30 years, Diane closed her shop and retired to Jackson, Mississippi. My first question for her might sound naive. Is there a message that President Biden could send that would get us to the unity he calls for in his inaugural address? But it comes out of my genuine perplexity on how to unify the dramatically opposing factions in the U.S. Democrats versus Republicans, those who voted for Trump versus those who elected Biden, those who believe in truth and facts versus those who don't seem to. We talk about this and more, the different kinds of political messaging, the January 6th assault on the Capitol, white supremacy, the current echoes of the resistance to the civil rights movement, why people get stuck in their own political bubbles, and Diane's analysis of why polling is not the strategic tool it used to be which is one reason she decided to shut down her firm and start a new chapter of her life where she no longer sells her time, but is finding ways to contribute in her new community. Lots to chew on. Be sure to check the show notes for links, including one to Diane's blog, The View from the Pearl, referring to the river that runs through Jackson. Let's jump right in. Diane, welcome to the show. Great to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Diving in, I've got this question. It's burning a, a burning question, and it might be naive, but I think of political consultants as being masters of messaging. Mm -hmm. So the question I was really hoping you could answer is, what's the message that will get us to the unity that President Biden is calling for? You know, the unity that will bridge this unbridgeable political divide. I don't, well, first, I don't know if we're masters of messaging, but we do at least try to claim that we are. So I guess that that works. Um, and then what I did was political campaign. So the message was for the purpose of winning elections, which is very, very different than message for the purpose of governing. Um, I think that some of what he needs to do is not message, but to simply show he can be effective. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that people want to know that this can get better, that they are really frustrated with the divisions in the country. They're frustrated with the uh, what's going on with COVID. They're frustrated with what's going on in with the economy. And I'm not sure there's so much a lot he can say except to explain what he is going to do and how it's going to work and what the timetable is so that people can see that what he's saying is true and that things can get better for them than they are right now. Well, I'll ask you about governing messaging 
for governing versus elections. But first, uh, we exchanged emails before we started talking today. And you wrote, and I was so intrigued by this, you wrote, much of the power of messaging is in understanding where people are at the start. Politics doesn't create new thoughts so much as help organize what people are already thinking. Can you say more about that? I totally can, and I can stand by that. It wasn't just a passing thought. Uh, but look, people are out here living their lives, uh, worrying about their families, worrying about their jobs, worrying about what's going on with them. They are talking to their friends and neighbors. They already have a lot of attitudes about what the problems are and what's happening. None of that gets created by politicians. It gets created by people themselves in conversation and interaction as part of their daily lives. And I think the the best messaging kind of understands where people are. Now, everybody's different. There isn't any aggregate that's true of everyone. But to understand what they talk about as the mood, which right now is, as I noted a moment ago, kind of frustrated and um, and speak to it, you know, that you can't just tell people everything is great if they don't believe that that is true and that that's not what their experience is. And you can't tell them that we've solved the problems if, in fact, they're observing that the problems are still true. Uh, you can tell them what you're going to do about it, and you can say that you understand their frustrations. So, um, as I said, I don't, I don't think pol- politicians and politics doesn't create people's mood and it doesn't work unless it's responding to what is happening in people's lives and, and what their mood and their attitudes toward the political world is at that time. And you also noted, and I think you mentioned it before, that, so what's the difference between messaging to win elections, which is really, I guess, what you did for 30 years in Washington, versus messaging to govern, which you, you tell me a different goal. Um, and actually, there's a recent example of what I just said and, and also the difference. I mean, to win elections, people have two choices. As they so frequently say, they end up voting for the lesser of two evils. That's not what they want to do, but it is often what they feel they do. And so, you know, the first thing is, is the election a, a choice or a referendum on the incumbent? Um, and, you know, obviously, to some degree, all elections are both, but sometimes they are more a referendum on the incumbent. And sometimes they are more which of these two people is going to do a better job leading us forward. And so, you know, one option, and it's not always a very productive one socially, but is often a very productive one for campaigns is to just go after the other guy um, to tell that, that the other what the other guy using guy as a generic term because it could be another woman. Um, but that the other guy, what the other guy is doing just isn't working. Um, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, the option of that sort of negative messaging that, you know, I may not be any good, but I'm better than the other guy is no way to govern. And so there needs to be a different kind of messaging where you're giving people information um, there, where that information turns out to be true and where they start to have some level of confidence in leadership, which, you know, a lot of people haven't had confidence in political leadership for a generation. But um, that's the goal of governing, whereas the goal of a message in an election is to win the election. Mm. But it just seems as if the current political divide in this country is 
unbridgeable. I mean, this gap between truth and facts and then, I guess, alternate reality that, uh, you know, that the election was stolen mm -hmm. for Trump. So what, what, how do we... In some ways, I think the last election showed that it's not unbridgeable. And you had historically high levels of turnout. Um, president Biden, you know, won more votes than I think any president ever. I believe that's true. I'm not, that almost has to be true. Um, and, um, uh, so people participated in a very high level and they, and they made a choice that doesn't get rid of the divisions. There were a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump, but, um, in, in some ways, the selection of Biden, which despite the controversy was actually a pretty strong selection in both absolute vote terms. I mean, he got 85 million votes and in electoral college terms, it, it, it wasn't a close election. Uh, I think that the, the notion that the election was stolen, which, you know, I, I, there's, Nobody has produced any evidence for. There were 61 court cases and not a single one was won, um, you know, was a tactic. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people that believe the election was stolen and that people believe things that they hear a lot of and they heard a lot of it. But the, the result of the election itself does show that a majority of people wanted different leadership and a different kind of leadership and large numbers of people showed up in order to make that choice happen. Mm. Did you think before the election, did you think Biden was going to win or were you confident? I thought Biden was going to win. I was, I was not confident only, only because I was concerned about disruption on election day. I was concerned about potential violence on election day. I was concerned about some of the kinds of things that happened afterwards um, but the reality is, is that four years ago, um, more people voted against Trump than voted for Trump. There were the handful of states where the election was very close. Democratic turnout had been low in all of them. And I didn't think that would be the case this year or what is now last year. Um, and it wasn't. So I thought structurally, given how upset people were about COVID and the economy and how close the election had been four years earlier, that structurally, I thought that Biden was likely to win. Well, now you're living in Jackson, Mississippi. Yes, I am. You, you've retired. You're at least a thousand miles from DC. I want to ask you, you know, what, what is that new perspective like for you? But remind us first why you moved to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I, I mean, I wanted to change if I had stayed in Washington and spent all of my time with the same people talking about the same things. And, um, you know, it, if you are a political consultant in Washington, you spend an awful lot of time talking about politics. And I, I'll admit I still do, but less than I would have if I was there. Uh, and that if I was going to retire and change my life, that I shouldn't just stay in the same place. Uh, I have, I've done work in Mississippi over the years. So it was a place I was familiar with. I have friends here. Um, it is, I will admit, far lower cost of living than Washington. And that was relevant. And it's a lot warmer. It's 70 degrees here today. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I know it's not in Maine. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
you know, for a, for a lot of reasons, I'd actually thought for a long time about retiring to Mississippi. There are lots of things that frustrate me about Mississippi, but there are lots of things I like as well. And it is very not Washington. <laughs> and, um, so if I was going to make a change and I thought I could go up to Washington every couple of months and I did my first year here, obviously in my second year here, I stayed put and that was a struggle at times, but, um, it's, it's been a good move. Mm. So what is, or maybe this question isn't valid anymore, but what's the, your, what's the perspective like for you looking, looking at DC and all that goes on from, from Jackson? Um, well, it's, it's because what I did when I was in Washington was, was polling and, um, opinion research. I always worked when I was there to be sort of in touch with what people not in Washington were thinking. Um, so that's not very different, but it, I do have to end up reminding my friends in Washington that no one is paying attention to the minutiae that they're paying attention to or not no one, but very few people. Um, I think there's a tendency in Washington to think that everybody's following the, the minutia of politics and everybody's watching the Sunday shows, which a lot of people do around the country, but not most people. And that everybody's reading the Washington Post, which they don't in Mississippi. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it is a reminder, although I don't know that I needed one, that the framework in most of the country is not the framework in Washington. Mm. Well, maybe that's a way of putting in context the the group that charged into the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, it was so horrifying, but it wasn't actually that many people. Should, in a sense, can we be less worried because it was only whatever it was, several hundred, not a hundred thousand? I mean, what? Well, I'm not... I, it, there was, I actually was surprised at how many there were. I mean, it, it, the whole crowd, not that they went into the Capitol, but the whole crowd that was there to support Trump was, you know, a, a, I, have, I haven't seen official estimates, but random estimates from people who saw it, that it was in the neighborhood of 30,000. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only a, a hundred or a couple hundred who entered the Capitol. So I, you know, I think there's a lot of missing information about, who was there and what they intended. And, and there was unquestionably a hardcore people who intended violence toward elected representatives and uh, they're being identified and prosecuted and who vandalized the building. But I don't, I don't think we can assume that that's true of everyone who was there. Mm. And, you know, look, I, I don't, I mean, I, as I said, there were 61 court cases and a lot of them had Republican judges and not a single one of them um, came to the conclusion that there had been widespread election fraud or that the that the result of the election was in doubt. So I'm not suggesting it, but everybody gets isolated in the community that they're in. I mean, I, I know that people in communities that that Trump won thought Trump was going to win the election because that's who they interact with. So, I mean, everyone ends up, I think, risking being on an island and not really knowing what's going on in the country more broadly. So, you know, they were hearing from from former President Trump, who they respected, that the election was stolen. They believed him. The people they interact with in their communities 
were more likely Trump supporters than not, as opposed to the people I interact with in my community, very few of whom are Trump supporters, although Trump won Mississippi legitimately. And, uh, you know, so that I, I think that they came to believe it and they are angry, angry people. The white supremacist piece of this, which was obviously a dominant force, Trump fed and had fed for years. And that, um, I, I hope in the absence of that kind of feeding that it calms down a little bit. But in the meantime, look, they broke the law. They vandalized a building. They threatened members of Congress. I mean, they, they engaged in, in, in what's criminal behavior and are going to be prosecuted for it. Mm. I mean, I guess my thought was, um, well, first of all, I think Sam and I, my husband and I watch way too much news. So we're, mm-hmm. Just we're we're way too involved in the minutia of what goes on in Washington. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I'm thinking is Joe Biden mentioned white supremacy in his inaugural address, and mm-hmm. uh, that taps a fear into me that it's really widespread. That it's you know this huge huge force in this country. I guess I was trying to draw an al- analogy to what you said about people are in their own right. bubble, and then actually maybe it's not that big. A force. I mean, I, I, you know, can I can I deduce that? Can I draw that conclusion from? Okay, it was several hundred people who stormed into the Capitol. But I guess what I'm saying is, are things maybe not as bad? Is the is this Gulf that we're experiencing not as bad in this, in this country, or or is it? No, I think I think that I mean two things on this, and and you know there are matter. The the first is that you know there are some some matters of degree here. I don't think that everyone who voted for Donald Trump is a white supremacist, that there are those who had concerns about Biden. Um, there are those who believe that Trump has been good for the economy and who just, you know, frankly don't care or don't care enough about the, the racist things that Trump did and said for that to overcome other reasons in their mind to vote for Trump. So, I, I don't assume that all 71 million or whatever it is who voted for Trump are white supremacists or, and certainly not violent white supremacists. Um, I do think that a lot of them felt that Trump had been good for the economy, which has gotten better during the Trump administration, whether that's because of things he did or not. That up to COVID, though, there had been some renewed economic growth. And for people who are not engaged in issues of racial equity or equality, that for some was enough for them, um, despite his other failures. Mm. The, the second thing, which um, was, and I, and I don't, I don't mean to, to sound like I'm calm about all of this, but um, the second thing, which I did find reassuring is a friend of mine who'd been uh, a leader in the civil rights movement in the sixties said, you know, there's nothing new about this. Uh, you know, this has gone on for a long, long time that the 70 million or 71 million people who voted for Trump are the same people who opposed in, in, in category, in, in category, not as individuals who opposed Dr. King, who ended reconstruction. There's nothing new about them. What is new is the 85 million people who were willing to stand up to it. And, you know, that in a sense, I think is the, is the positive piece of this that we had people, some people who had voted for Trump before, others who were Republican, and then a coalition of 
voters of color and peace and immigrant families and LGBTQ um, rights activists and millennials and young people uh, and suburban women and all of the 85 million people who voted for Biden, that many of them actually stood up in a way that is new, while those who voted for Trump, in fact, are ideologically and in their ideas, throwbacks to a discussion that's been going on since the early part of the 19th century. It actually before the 19th century. Right. Gosh, I frankly find that so comforting the way you just put it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, I just watched this new documentary, MLK FBI, Mm -hmm. um, which is all about um, Martin Luther King and, uh, and the FBI, and 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 so it, what you said just rings entirely true. Because mm-hmm. when I watched it, I thought, "Oh, this is what's I've seen this before." You know, it it was uh, sort of made you skin crawl. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about your blog, but first, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about Jackson, Mississippi, and the seventy degree weather and the flowers <laughs> that are blooming, or whatever is going on down there. Here I do. I have daffodils blooming in my yard already. Um, and uh, not very many, but they're coming up and there's a couple of them blooming. So look, I mean, Mississippi's a very interesting and very complicated place. It, um, um, it, it, it's, it is the state in the country with the largest, which is the largest percentage African-American. It's, it's 38% black, which no other state is as high as that. And, you know, my view is that culturally a lot of what happens in Mississippi um, derives from that. The food, um, you know, the sort of Southern food of fried chicken is West African and greens are West African. The music, Mississippi has a really rich culture around music and writing, um, blues music, uh, country music. I mean, Elvis was born here as, as many people already know. Um, and the confluence of blues gospel and, and country music that created rock and roll. We had, um, birthplace of America's music on the license plate for a long time. Um, the writing culture, which I actually could argue comes in part from West African storytelling, but nonetheless, I mean, there are probably more famous writers for, from Mississippi, which is not a very big place than any place. Um, it also had more racial violence than any place in the country in part because it was a relatively even population. And right now there's a very conservative white supremacist streak in Mississippi, um, which is greater than other places and pushback against it. The Mississippi civil rights movement, which was led by local people and college students um, who were part of student nonviolent coordinating committee, I think is one of the great stories of freedom um, and fighting for freedom in world history. Uh, and, you know, there's a museum here which commemorates the Mississippi civil rights movement. If anyone ever comes to Jackson, I recommend the civil rights museum. Um, so there's a lot here. Uh, when, again, if you look at it as a state as a whole, it's a pretty conservative place, but you know, that's not true of Jackson. It's sort of not true of 40% of Mississippi. Mm. And that's the, that's the part of Mississippi that I live in. 
It, I have to say, and you know, in some ways, it it sounds like a perfect perch for you. Um, you know, given all your interest in these kinds of issues over the over the many decades. Um, now, I know you started a blog, and I was just, in fact, I went back to look at it before we talked. And you say on the side of the blog that one of the reasons you shut down your political polling and research firm in D.C., which you ran for 30 years, was that you feel the way political research and polling are done needs to change. Mm -hmm. Without going into great detail about that, can you tell us a little bit in layman's language about, um, because I think that's something on uh, people who like to follow the news, maybe pay too much attention to the news are interested in, you know, what do these polls mean anything or is polling dead because it doesn't work anymore? Right. Um, Somewhere in between on those. And yet I'll try not to get too wonky about it, but it, you know, it's, it's certainly true that, that 30 years ago um, people answered their phones and polling was unusual. I, I semi facetiously say they thought it was an honor to be polled and, you know, there's too much polling. You know, every time you do anything, you get a survey to follow up to what your customer experience was or what have you. There are a lot of pollsters also. And anyone who's interested in being polled, I'm sure, has been polled a whole lot of times. Um, people don't answer their phone if they don't recognize the number. There was no caller ID in the 1980s and, and uh, no one was using a cell phone. Cell phones per se are not the issue, but they all have caller ID. And so... You know, the reality is, is that you don't really get the same kind of sample that you used to. You can work on it. Um, you can make it better. Uh, but there are just a lot of people who don't take polls and that makes them less accurate than they were. Now, they're not inaccurate. If you're looking at an election and, and you see that someone is likely to win by 20 points, you can certainly be pretty certain they're going to win. But in the close elections, which are the ones that get polled, the plus or minus three percentage point elections, um, you can't tell. I mean, Georgia was an example of that. But mm. What was going to happen in Georgia was going to depend on it was going to be a close election. You knew that because it had been a close election before the runoff. And it was going to depend as much on turnout as anything else. And that the polling, while it used to help you, know who was going to turn out really doesn't anymore because there's so many people who won't be polled that it just isn't accurate in the same way that it was. Now, where you're not looking to find out who's going to win, where you're looking to see what people are thinking, I think it still does a pretty good job at that, not within a couple percentage points. And I keep saying that I'm not talking about margin of error, which is a statistical thing. You just always have to keep in mind that there may be people who are voting who don't usually vote who are in the poll, that there are people who are excited about a candidate who don't usually vote who are not in your poll um, if it's taken off the voter file. So it's just not a tool that's going to tell you who's going to win a close election. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is a tool that can help you help you find out what people are thinking who are outside your circle. Uh, We started with the people who are outside your circle and, and how do you know what they're thinking? And polling is one way of doing that. It's just not what it used to be. The other thing is, is that for planning campaigns, polling is great if you're talking about what information should we put on television. But where we have the internet and people are getting their news in different places and they're not watching 
you know, ABC, NBC, or CBS, which used to be the three choices when you and I were growing up, but they could be on some limitless number of websites. Um, you know, different people are looking for different information and putting it all together in an aggregate that you do in a poll doesn't necessarily guide the campaign strategy the way it used to either. So that, that it's not, it's not the strategic tool it used to be. And it certainly isn't as accurate. Now there are plenty of people who note that polls are better now than they were a decade ago. And look, there've always been a lot of fly by night polls. You know, the Dewey, Dewey and Truman election was wrong because there were, so many people that didn't have telephones and they only did telephone polling. So it's not a new problem, but I think that the degree of the problem is different than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reliance on polling is not as healthy as it used to be. Was that sad for you to come to that conclusion and decide, okay, um, uh, it was just time to move on or was it? It was incredibly stressful to try to do my very best for my clients under what I knew were very changed circumstances. And I didn't hide that from them, that the the circumstances were changed, that there was less certainty that we were, there were people that we weren't getting on polls. I mean, one of the, in, in the 1980s, I would, you know, it was 10 calls on average for a completed poll. And now it's 150, or at least it was in 2018. I don't know what it is right now. Um, and they knew that. Uh, it made the cost of polls go way up. But where you have a client that you care about that is relying on you to say what people in his or her state are thinking, that I thought I was able to do. But where it was a close election, is that individual going to win? And, you know, you can't say I can't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Not for what they were paying you, I hope. They were right. paying a lot. Right. But, um um, you can say you can say yes and whatever and and you know where your uncertainties are you know what it is that could block what you think is true mm-hmm. um, and then you know frankly polling can be very technical I know you, you encouraged me not to get too technical about it but it can be extremely technical I took that responsibility as seriously as I could there are a lot of people out there who don't take it as as seriously as they can. And, um, you know, doing my very best to make sure that we made extra calls to get young voters rather than just upweight them, which is, I know that was a little on the, on the wonky side, but there are a lot of like corrections that get made to the polls, um, that, you know, I think sometimes go a little far rather than really talking to the voters who are hard to reach, but that you can reach if you keep at it. You know, the the topic of this podcast is supposed to be the, and I say supposed to be, because there's also a chance for me to talk to wonderful people and just find out about things I'm interested in. I am interested mm-hmm. in polling. But, um, you know, this gap year, they were all, mm-hmm. I'm calling it a gap year, the, the collective gap year, they were all living through. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you're supposed to do in a gap year is, you know, really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm find a new purpose, take mm-hmm. action. And so that that's, was a question, again, for you now in in Jackson, as you look around at the country. This year, you know, right now, with all that's mm-hmm. going on, and part of it, of course, is the pandemic and waiting for the vaccine, but how do you, how does an individual take 
agency, if I can use that expression? Or how does an individual make a difference when you're in Jackson or maybe you're in Stonington, Maine, which is a very far mm-hmm. away place? Is it possible to, to do that, to do something that makes a difference that um, helps, I don't know, maybe bridge the divide that I... Absolutely. I mean, one thing is I, I um, as you know, your time is very valuable during the gap year and it's very valuable to you. And I no longer sell my time. So it belongs to me. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't give it away. Um, I'm very happy to help uh, in terms of local political candidates I believe in to give whatever advice that they may um, may or may not find valuable. Um, I don't poll for anybody, but I, I do share my perceptions and my thoughts on strategy. And, and, you know, honestly, that's been, been welcomed in some quarters. Um, the blog is a way of expressing my point of view for whoever is interested in hearing it. Um, and, uh, some people are and many people aren't. And, um, that's an option. I mean, you, you have the podcast and your own blog. And so there are lots of opportunities for expression. And that expression is not circumscribed by the need to sell something. And that, frankly, is enormously freeing. Um, and then, you know, where it's political, you know, I, I, I would hope that everyone in a gap year or in their retirement engages in their local community. I haven't been here very long and I'm very conscious that, you know, I'm not in charge of anything in Mississippi at all, but I, I learn a great deal both about um, the history of the place and what's going on now. And I participate locally as much as I can. And in some ways I think you can make a bigger difference in your local community than I ever sort of could in Washington, which was also a local community, but Washington is a, as a national place, as opposed to Washington as a local place. That's such an important point. And um, I think that's a perfect place to, to end because that's inspiring uh, is to really think about where you live and, and what you can do there. So Diane, thank you so much. Thank you. I was, this was, I'm so glad that you had me on. And that's it for this episode of The Gap Year Podcast. Here's an update. We're at the two-year anniversary of this podcast. Each episode is a labor of love, requiring time, energy, and creativity. To continue, we need your support and encouragement. We're continuing to look for a like-minded sponsor, but we also need support from you, our listeners. You can offer that in two ways. First, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes less than a minute. And second, consider supporting us through Patreon, a membership platform. I'll be telling you more about Patreon very soon. I'm Debbie Weil, and you can email me at thegapyearpodcast at gmail.com. Till next time.